Welcome to the AccuSprout Podcast, where it's my mission to help new practitioners of Chinese medicine navigate from school to career. I'm Stacy. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist, podcaster, coach, and creator of Magical Networks. Be sure to check out all four pillars of the podcast where I cover case studies to sharpen your clinical skills, mindset Mondays to support your mental health, new practitioner interviews to prove that you are not alone, and all things business from launching your practice to negotiating your pay if you choose to be an employee. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors. So if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors page on the website to claim your special AccuSprout offers. When I first started my practice, I was actually kind of a disaster when it came to my books. I hired an accountant who actually laundered money from another client. So I went on a quest to find a bookkeeper who really tailors to and loves working with acupuncturists. And I found Sarah at Horizon West Bookkeeping, and I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Sarah offers acupuncturists and the AccuSprout community a couple different packages so that she can meet you where you are. If you're new to practice, she can come in and do what's called a QuickBooks startup package for you, where you get pretty deep discounts on QuickBooks for about four months. She sets up your chart of accounts, assists with linking your bank accounts, makes sure that all the transactions are imported, and then teaches you how to use it with two hours of one-on-one training. It's a killer deal. She also offers cleanup packages and catch-up packages. Not catch-up packages, guys. Catch-up packages. And a monthly package, which is what I use. And I find it quite affordable and so, so, so worth it because, honestly, I never, since the beginning, have been able to keep up with my bookkeeping. You can schedule a free 15-minute consultation with Sarah to make sure that you guys are the right fit for each other. And you can do that at horizonwestbookkeeping.com forward slash AccuSprout or look for the link in the show notes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software with helpful features to power your acupuncture practice. Jane offers flexible scheduling options that match the way you work. You have the option of offering one-on-one online sessions for initial consults, meeting in person, and scheduling staggered appointments to accommodate treating patients across different treatment rooms. Jane has you covered. Keep the relaxation going with a seamless checkout experience using Jane's PCI-compliant payment solution, Jane Payments. You can collect patient credit cards securely through your intake form or at the time of booking with an online booking payment policy. This can also help reduce no-shows in your practice. It's a win-win. And Jane's unlimited SMS and email reminders can be sent automatically before each appointment as an extra layer of no-show protection. To learn more about how Jane's helpful features can help you power your acupuncture practice, head to jane.app to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their team. Or if you're ready to get started, head on over to accusprout.com forward slash Jane. And remember to use the code accusprout1mo at the time of sign up to get a one-month grace period applied to your new account. Most of us go into this industry because we love patient care, not because we love running a business. And so it's very understandable that we go into it, not with this like passion for QuickBooks or like, boy, do I just want to like build bridges with my financial institutions, right? So it's understandable to come into it not feeling super passionate about it. But I think it is super important to, if you're going to run a successful practice, to 
just bite the bullet and familiarize yourself with basic economics, with basics of running business, business plans, mission statements, things that feel like, why do I possibly have to do this, but actually end up being really important and really helpful to, to hone your mindset and your goals and build the practice that you really want to have. If you stick to who you are and what feels good to you, you can find a way to practice in a way that honors who you want to be. Welcome to the AccuSprout Podcast, where it's my mission to create a supportive community for new practitioners of Chinese medicine, while I give you the information and inspiration to help you grow towards your vision of success in your first couple years of practice. This is Stacey Whitcomb, and I am your host. As new practitioners, we're bombarded with an astounding number of choices to make that can, to some of us, seem paralyzing. How do we suss out what is right for us in our future? Questions like where to live, how to get into practice, what kind of practice? Should you buy a practice or grind through those first couple of years on your own? Should you partner with another professional? As a new graduate or a new practitioner, you may be asking yourself a multitude of questions right now. Should you seek out and purchase a practice? If so, is it better to buy a large practice or would it be more lucrative to purchase a solo practitioner practice? (laughs) What is a fair price to pay? What terms can you negotiate into the purchase? For example, can you have access to the previous owner if you need to navigate some unexpected challenges? How important is it to hire an attorney and an appraiser? What don't you know? What don't you know that could bite you in the ass later? Or maybe purchasing is not an option. Maybe you just want to work for someone else for a couple of years and get some clinical experience. Do you know the difference between being an independent contractor and an employee? Is it in your best interest to be paid a salary or to be paid a commission? Either way, what is fair compensation? Well, I found you the seasoned expert. (laughs) In this episode, I speak with Marianne Jenis, who has been an independent contractor, an employee. She's been in partnership. She's been a solo practitioner. She's been a chiropractor, a massage therapist. She's hired people. She's fired people. She's negotiated the sale of a business. She's negotiated the purchase of a business. (laughs) She's dissolved a business. Marianne has experienced every element of business ownership that you could possibly experience. So in this episode, I discuss with Marianne everything that I could possibly ask her and how to navigate every possibility. So listen in as I have this conversation with Marianne Jenis. Welcome to the show, Marianne. Why don't you tell the Aki Sprouts about yourself? Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So I've been in alternative medicine for about 25 years. I started out as a massage therapist when I was 20 years old, and I did that for a number of years, and then 14 years ago, graduated from chiropractic school and have been a chiropractor since then. And I've done every every aspect of that type of a practice. So I've been an employee, I've been an independent contractor, I've been an associate, I've been in a partnership with another practitioner. I've been in business with my husband, and I've also run a practice that was largely just all my own, and I made all the decisions on that. So I have lots lots of experience with running businesses of various different sizes and also being the newbie who needs some help knowing how to start out. 
So you started your entry into helping people heal to being a healer for the public Mm -hmm. as a massage therapist. Were you on your own at that point or were you working for somebody then? I I sort of stumbled into it. Honestly, I was looking for a job because I coming out of it didn't have any business skills and wasn't sure exactly how to start out on my own. So I took a position with a chiropractor as a massage therapist. And it ended up being that the chiropractor that I worked for. She encouraged me to go to chiropractic school just because we worked really well together. And eventually when I graduated, I became her associate and then bought into her practice and shared the practice with her. So she and I worked together for 20 years, actually, or no, almost 20 years. That's huge. So you've been in that position and then you've also purchased a practice. Tell me about your genesis, your genesis, Dr. Genesis. (laughs) How did that? (laughs) Yeah. How did that go? Yeah. So the way that that worked was that we we had talked during the time that I was in chiropractic school about buying into the practice. And so I went in to a chiropractic practice as her associate with the intention to buy half the practice. And so that was something that we had already discussed. And we hadn't really talked terms at all, but I just knew that that was the eventual goal. And so I spent a year as the associate. And at that time, it was industry standard to be an independent contractor for when working for a practice like that. So I was an independent contractor associate for her. And then over the course of that year, we negotiated my purchase into the practice. And then after we owned the practice together for some time, ended up having some pretty fundamental differences in how we wanted to run the practice, how we wanted to balance home life versus work life. And so we eventually parted ways and Then I went over and moved into my husband's practice for a period of time. We blended basically my half of the practice with his. And during that time, I took an associate with me that had been working for me for about five years at that point. And when we blended this practice, it was with the intention that she would buy this practice because we had the intention of moving to Southern Oregon and ended up that she didn't end up buying the practice, but then another associate that I had, it was, sorry, it was a long story, but then another associate that I had did end up buying that practice. And then we relocated to Southern Oregon and then I started another practice. That's why you're on the show because you have like the best path ever from every perspective to share with the listeners. So many different angles of everything that we need to know. So thank you so much. So what's your opinion on a new practitioner purchasing a practice? What are your ideas and what does your experience tell you about this? Boy, you know, I would say if you don't feel really comfortable with small business ownership, if you haven't run a business yourself, I would be hesitant to say, just go straight out, buy a practice from someone and hit the ground running. Just because if it's an already established practice, even if it's a solo practitioner, there are a lot of skills that one has to you know, have immediately that new graduates potentially don't have. My philosophy in retrospect is the sort of start small, grow slow perspective, if possible. And I realize that there's this financial aspect of it. We can't all just Mm -hmm. live off of three patients a week. But I'd say if someone is coming out of school thinking, boy, I'd love to buy a practice, getting some small business know-how before actually taking over a practice would be pretty pretty crucial. And unless you're in a situation where it was like with myself, where you're going into a practice where there's going to be a potential turnover period. And so you can do some on the job training and learn from that experienced practitioner so that when it is yours, 
you know what the heck you're doing. <laughs> right. And this is kind of what I was thinking as well. I recently chatted with a practitioner who's interested in selling their practice. And I'm not really sitting in a place where I'm overly interested in purchasing a practice, but I would consider mm-hmm. it. But it was exactly that. I thought, well, I would much rather come in and be an associate for about a year to see how this practice really runs from the inside, as opposed to just looking at the numbers on paper. Mm-hmm. And not only that, like, I don't know how to run a busy practice. I know how to run a very unbusy practice at this point. <laughs> but a busy practice with multiple patients per hour, I, I don't know how to do that. And I don't know how to bill insurance either. So for new practitioners who may be wanting to purchase a practice, is that feasible to actually purchase a practice and have that written into the terms? Is that the way that you want to transfer one practice to another person? Uh, Yeah, I I have several thoughts on that. Yes, it would be, if you're going to buy a practice, a turnover period, I think is crucial. And having a period of time where where the staff gets used to you as the new owner and understanding the flow of the practice, the nuances of kind of how it runs, you know, whether you have to jiggle the toilet when it flushes. I mean, all these funny little things that you don't think of until all of a sudden you're handed the keys and now it's your responsibility. But the one thing that I would caution that's sort of like the flip side of that coin is that if you are going to buy a practice, if somebody says, oh, hey, I would love for you to buy this practice, be my associate, I'll teach you everything you need to know, and then I'll sell it to you. My graduating class at chiropractic school, I'd say there was probably eight of us who through the entire period of chiropractic school were saying like, hey, I'm going to go work for so-and-so and I'll be buying their practice. and you know, the whole time it's with this expectation. Only myself and another classmate of mine actually had that happen because the other doctors backed out. And Mm -hmm. actually, strangely, my other classmate, it happened because the other doctor died. There's a lot of situations where they go into it thinking, oh, I'd love to sell. They get the associate. The associate takes some of the work off of their plate so that they're feeling less strained. And then they're like, why would I sell it? I should just keep this associate forever. This is so much easier. I'll just stay this way. And so I would say, you know, and I've, I've never negotiated a contract like this, but I think that it's possible, you know, I would, I would advise anytime negotiating any kind of sales contract that you just bite the bullet and pay a lawyer to help you with the contract. I've used lawyers a number of times throughout my career and they're worth the money because it can bite you later if you don't have a solid contract. But I would say negotiate into the contract that let's say, you know, there's going to be a year turnover, for example, at which point the seller agrees that they will sell to you because... Oh, because they could back out. Yep. Oh, yeah. And and like I said, it happened. uh, it's happened to a number of people. And that was just in my graduating class. But I know of several other people who had been told, oh, I'm going to sell it to you. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, I want to retire. And then, you know, five years later, they're still an associate hoping that they will buy the practice and not with any clear sense about when that would happen. That's interesting that you brought that up because I, I could see that from the other perspective too, like how I had said that I had chatted with this person and I thought, well, hire me as your associate for a year and then I'll tell you if I want to buy. It was the same thing. Like she wants to sell now. How fair is it to her to hire me, bring me in, train me, and then me like go, yeah, I don't think so. Right. It's it's hard on both sides and it's it's a really delicate dance. I mean, I think it's it, it's yeah, there's there's benefits to just handing it over quickly because then you know, like, boy, this is going to happen. There's a there's a 
finality to it and an assurance to that. But then you're kind of stuck with the decision that you made. So you have to kind of balance that. In my experience, it's more common that an associate comes in with a goal of eventual ownership of some practice that they want to eventually run their own practice. And so they come in a far more optimistic that this will work out for them in terms of buying it, as opposed to a uh, someone who already has an established practice be, being willing to walk away from the thing that they worked so hard to build. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a complicated dance. It's more complicated <laughs> than I had thought about. And so what would the best case scenario be for someone who is interested in purchasing a practice? So I'd say from, I think from the seller's perspective, it's a little easier. My goal in selling my practice is I wanted that practice to succeed. I wasn't selling it just to make the money. I, these are, you know, people who you know, a lot of my patients had been my massage clients. So I'd known them mm. for 20 years. So I really had a, a big investment in finding someone that had a similar style to mine so that that transition would be smooth. But from as a, from a buyer's perspective, I think there's a lot of aspects that that's important. One that I already touched upon, get some business experience, know how to use QuickBooks. You know, I mean, there's books and videos and all sorts of stuff. And you can take, you know, community college classes, on, you know, all these kind of topics. So I think that while you're in that transition period, pretending that it's a perfect world where you have this overlapping transition period, soak up everything you can about that practice and how to do finances of that practice. And hopefully, the person that you'd be buying from would be very open and transparent about how they run their practice, about what their employer style is, about how they market their practice, you know, as much as you could learn from them. I think would be really useful. And and just to go back to what something I just mentioned about the similar style, I think that that's something that new practitioners, myself included, often try to do is be the, be the perfect practitioner to every patient that walks in the door. And so, because we don't have the experience and we don't have, honestly, the ego yet, but like, hey, my mm-hmm. stuff is worth it. And what I do is good. And if it's not a good fit, then I'm going to help you find somebody who it is good for and you can move on. And so, you know, like, for instance, when I was a new chiropractor, I had a patient who came who wanted just all energy work. And like I'd taken one class in polarity once when I was a massage therapist and I tried my best and I was really wanting to be an energy worker, but I'm not an energy worker. And I spent a lot of time trying to be this person that I wasn't and you know, it ended up, I mean, she stayed with me actually for several months. And I think we did do some good work together. But it ended up that I had to just say, you know, here's, here's somebody else that can treat you better. Along those same lines, even if it seems like on paper, this is the perfect practice for you. If this person is like a five elements person and boy, are you a, hmm, something, you know, I'm not an acupuncturist, but, but whatever that other style, orthopedic acupuncturist, that might not be the best fit. And you might, spend a lot of money getting that practice and then lose all your patients. No, oh, your patients will hate you. <laughs> right, right, exactly. That's an important thing. I think finding something that feels like a good fit size-wise, I mean, just really considering, you know, what are your goals in business? And if that practice doesn't match relatively well to what your goals are, even if you really just want to buy a practice and this is priced right, boy, is it in the right neighborhood? Those elements are crucially important. And it's better just to wait and find something else than buy something that you're going to be sorry, you own. you know, bite off more than you can chew or bite off the wrong flavor of 
AccuSprout listeners, I I hope that you're paying attention because what Marianne sort of just dialed up, she said, but she didn't say is it really always just goes back to doing a really thorough evaluation on yourself, especially as a new practitioner out of school and taking a look at what's important to you in your practice. Who do you want to treat? Where do you want to treat? How many patients an hour do you want to treat? What does your perfect day look like? You really need to have all those things in your head before you start entertaining the idea of purchasing something. So thank you for doing that, Marianne. That was awesome. I didn't expect you to say all that was perfect. You just dialed up some really great stuff that practitioners need to take a look at and kind of almost even put it into different boxes. Actually, you said, take a look at how they're doing their, their financial management their target market or their niche market, if they have one, what that looks like, location, amount of patient seen. There was Mm -hmm. another one that you talked about too, treatment style with employees. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. Treatment style, I feel like I kind of talked about a little bit. Employees, I'd say that's not as crucial because, you know, most people have worked for multiple people before. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think most of us as employees are flexible enough to adapt to slightly different management styles. But, you know, one thing, for example, with the associate that ended up buying my practice, she is a much more cut and dried communicator. I tend to be a little more dance around it. You know, (laughs) I, I firmly believe as an employer in the sandwich principle. So if you have something negative you need to share with that person, you sandwich it between two positives. So boy, I'm so glad that you're learning all of this so quickly. I realize that being a receptionist is a difficult job and you're really picking up on a lot of this stuff. You know, one thing I'd love for you to concentrate on is making sure not to double book me because then it makes it difficult for patients to be seen and feel like they had enough time with me. But man, I know this is so hard. This is such a great thing that you're doing, right? So that's that's sort of my style. And her style was more like, hey. So, you know, I had to teach her like, here's how we do this, you know, and, and again, she didn't have much business learning and, and she learned and she did, she's doing a great job. She's very successful in, in the practice, but so people are flexible, but also like if you're, if your style as a human being interacting with people feels like it's diametrically opposed to the other person you're buying from, that's might be something to consider, but, but by and large employees kind of roll with it or they move on. And that's the joy of owning a business is that now <laughs> yay, you get to learn how to hire next. But the one thing I, that I did think of is chart noting. For me, I'm an absolute chart note nerd. It's crucially important to me to have good chart notes. And I think if I tried to buy into a practice in which the chart notes were you know, non-existent or sparse, it would be very difficult turnover. And particularly in regards to patient retention, one of the things that I found was the most helpful in both being an, a new associate at a practice and also in transitioning practices from my practice to my husband's practice, things like that, was that the more I knew about that patient and that I could convey to them, the easier that transition was. Mm-hmm. So you're the new doc or the new acupuncturist in this new practice and it's day one, if you come into that patient and you say, hey, I understand you've been having a lot of pelvic floor pain and you've been having a lot of headaches. Sounds like you've been having a lot of stress. You know, so-and-so told me that, boy, she's been having some great success with XYZ treatment. The patient is going to sigh a great sigh of relief. They took a gamble trying somebody new. And, you know, because there are people who think, 
oh, I hope this is the same type of person. And so I'm willing to try. And then there's other patients who are going to say, nope, that's a new person, not going to do it. And all of those people that are willing to give it a try, if you validate their attempt to try something new by being being clear that you understand who they are and what the treatment plan is, oh man, it's going to make your life a lot easier. You're going to retain patients so much more quickly. And chart noting is the key element to that. That's an excellent point. An excellent point too, because those patients don't have to start from zero because I'm sure they're thinking, oh gosh, here we go again, especially if they've had problems with having to see multiple practitioners before somebody got them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. So you've owned small practices and you've owned large practices. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about the differences and the benefits of each? Sure. Yeah. I think there's benefits and, and hard things about both of them. So the the largest practice I own was the, the first one that I owned. We had six massage therapists, four chiropractors, about a five-person office staff. So it wasn't huge, but it's pretty significantly sized. We're pretty darn busy. And that was fun. I mean, it was really exciting to do something really big. It was exciting to have a lot of people get seen and treated and feel better. And it was really very rewarding to make a good workplace for a lot of people for having them get to have a happy home, you know, and be contributing to their life and be contributing to their families by providing them a job like that was very super rewarding. And also, it was nice to be able to delegate when you've got a biller and you've got a receptionist and you've got a back office clerk and granted an acupuncturist practice probably is not going to be quite that large, but you can get the idea that if somebody else can help you with those things, that's a helpful thing. That And that was actually one, one element that I learned in chiropractic school in one of our business classes. We had chiropractors tend to mostly be male and we had one business teacher who was female and she said, you know, I'm talking to the ladies in this classroom the number one reason why male chiropractors do better than female chiropractors or even business people in general is that women refuse to delegate because we just want to do it ourselves and we don't want to give up control of it. And we think, oh, you know, I shouldn't ask or I don't want to put upon you or all these different Mm -hmm. things. And so that was, I took that really to heart is that, you know, if you have the opportunity to delegate, then that person feels successful and you have less stress. Those are elements that I liked about practice in a large practice. It was difficult to balance my home life and my professional life, though. With a practice that big, you have employees coming and going on a pretty regular basis. It's just, that's just what happens. People move, people decide they don't want to do this anymore. They want to go back to school, all kinds of different reasons. And so you have to enjoy those moments where everything is the same rather than bemoan the times that things are changing. Because- Mm -hmm most of the time you're going to be in flux and you're going to be changing when you have that many people contributing to this business. And so, you know, you have to have a certain level of comfort with that constant, not quite chaos, but not quite not chaos, mm-hmm. you know, that goes with having something with that many cogs in in the wheel. My experience was that we had really young kids during that time period. I had my first baby right before I graduated from chiropractic school. And so I had really, really young kids when I had that very large practice. And and that was tricky. That was very tricky to figure out ways to find time to do everything that 
I needed to do to keep that practice running. In terms of a small practice, it's kind of the opposite. Boy, you don't have anybody you can delegate to, <laughs> but there's a lot less work. <laughs> you know, you get to be in control of every aspect of the practice. It's just the way you want it to be. But there's just less patients coming in and out of the door. There's less dollars coming in and out of the door. I will say, just as a side note, having run a pretty darn large and a medium to large and a small practice, the money is in large practice or small practice. If you have a medium-ish size practice where you have to have a fair amount of staff in order to keep the practice running, but there aren't enough practitioners that you're bringing in a whole lot of revenue to pay for that staff, you're going to make a lot less money. So that would be one thing I would advise is either go big or or go small. Because once you have an investment in a certain amount of staff, say a receptionist and a biller, those are the two chief things that receptionist can oftentimes handle a lot more patients. So you sort of have the sunk cost of the receptionist and you want them to be as busy as possible so that you're getting the most out of that salary that you're paying them. So it's definitely more lucrative if you go big, but your time is really eaten up and you can easily be challenged by that. Or you go with a small practice that is pretty much self-run or you can hire like a virtual assistant for some things or a biller or some smaller things, but do most of it yourself. How do you know what your sell price should be? I think in all the times when I bought into the practice, when we dissolved the practice between my business partner and I, and then when we sold our, you know, the practice I had with Jeff and I, we used practice appraiser. And I would say that is crucially important because having a neutral party determine the value of your practice allows you both to feel like you're being treated fairly. And there are, you know, a number of people out there and there are a number of people out there who specialize in alternative medicine. You know, there's a couple of guys out there who are retired chiropractors who do practice evaluations. And and the process is extremely complicated. You have to give them a list of every piece of equipment that you own. You have to give them a list of you know, how many patients do you see per day? How many patients are there total? You know, you know, what's the revenue that comes in? What's the revenue that comes out? What's your aging look like? Aging is how much money do you have outstanding with insurance companies? So it's, it's a pretty complicated process. It takes a number of hours to complete, but then they're able to create a rubric in which they say, here's what the price will be. And a lot of times they're also willing to help negotiate between parties. And they also oftentimes have potential buyers who've contacted them saying, hey, I'm looking for a practice in, say, Portland that's about this price. What do you have? And so they're useful in in that way as well. I will say that very grossly speaking, practice tends to be about what the gross income is for a year for the practice. So that's just a really broad way to think about, like, can I even afford this before I even start negotiating buying a practice? Or is that worth it to me if I'm going to sell a practice? If I got about what my gross is for a year, does that feel worth it to me? That just went over my head real quick. Okay. So sometimes it's based on your gross. It's it's So the, the practice evaluation really dials it in very tight. But mm-hmm. if we're going to speak in broad generalities, if someone's just thinking like, oh, I would love to buy that practice so that they know it's not a pipe dream, <laughs> the very rough, rough estimate is about what the gross of that practice is for a year. 
Okay. So that's just a very broad way. So you can decide, okay, is this practice going to cost me 20 grand? Is this practice going to cost me 250 grand? Uh-huh. So that's not particularly specific, but it's enough of a ballpark that you can think whether or not you can even entertain the idea of either buying or selling a practice. When you're negotiating the price, are there things that you want to put in there? Can you tell me a little bit about the things that you can put into the contract? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing also is once you get that appraised price, that isn't necessarily what your sale price is going to be. That's when the negotiating really starts happening. You Mm -hmm. have somewhere to start. And that's the part where I would say I would advise having a lawyer look over the sales contract because the practice appraiser will not provide you with that. So that's one little element of it. And most practices that I've heard of where there's been a purchase, there's some turnover. I think it's pretty standard to have a three-month turnover. Longer than that, I think, is probably less common just because a lot of times that practitioner just wants to be done and they Mm -hmm. want to move on to whatever it is that they're moving on to. The way I worked it with the associate that bought the practice from me, and I don't know if this is unusual or not, but I felt really good about it, was that for a year, she could call me with any questions she had and I would just help her out with it. And again, I was really motivated to have that practice do well. I can't say whether every person that sells a practice would be willing to do that, but alternative medicine tends to draw good people who are pretty into helping people. So I I would say that would be kind of a, a reasonable thing to ask for in a sales contract is that you could say, hey, I'm having this trouble with this biller and I don't know how to do this certain thing. Can you help me know what to do? A non-compete clause is pretty standard in a sales contract. There are folks out there within the industry that will start a practice, get it running with an associate, sell it, start another practice, get it running, sell it. And you want to make sure they don't open up shop around the corner from you and all the patients go that direction. So they're not particularly enforceable, but it's just sort of the spirit of, of the thing that you have a certain number of miles or different you know, landmarks like, you know, between Burnside and Halsey mm-hmm. or whatever, so that you have a little bit of a sense of distance from that person if they're planning on going into practice again. Anything else that you might want to negotiate in there? How does how does the the money work? Do you take out a business loan for the full amount and then pay the bank back? Does the exchange of money go that way? Or is it an ex- a continued payment towards the, that would be a private sale to the to the owner? So I think that there's lots of ways you can do it. You certainly can get a bank business loan. They will oftentimes have a lot of contingencies that they want to see how successful is the practice, you know, how much revenue does the practice bring in. They want to check your credit record. So you have to be prepared that it's just like buying a home to get a loan through a bank. You have to have all these kind of aspects to make them feel comfortable taking the risk with you. An ideal situation would be if you can either get money privately, this is an ideal situation, but you have a rich grandpa you know, who can rent, lend you money, or sometimes a combination of the two. What I did with the associate that bought from me is that she actually was able to get some money privately, and then we financed the rest of it. We negotiated what interest rates and things like that. And so then she just slowly paid it off over time. There's there's several cool. different ways to go about it, but there are loans available. I mean, it's, small business loans do exist. And so that's not an impossibility if you don't have all the capital up front. Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, you're now in debt a couple hundred thousand for school and you've got to figure out how to come out and get, yeah, it's a tricky situation. So if somebody wanted to buy or sell, where would they find practices for sale or how does a person find a buyer? Can you talk about that connection? I don't know that I have any super deep answers other than finding a practice appraiser because they're Mm. ones who are looking to sell practices. So there's, you know, if you just Google, you know, acupuncture practice evaluator or appraiser, they'll have a website and it'll have their whole list of here's what, you know, I have for sale. Also through your schools. So through, you know, the acupuncture school, oftentimes they're posted. I've seen them on Craigslist before. I mean, I think that there's sort of, you know, lots of different venues in which you can go, but I'd say probably one of the best ways is through a practice appraiser just because that's that's their business and i i believe i believe to be honest i i don't quote me directly on this or well i am quoted directly because i'm talking but i think actually you can have a practice appraiser for a fee kind of almost act as a scout for you and i feel like when i talked to the appraiser that i worked with most recently they did that with people like hey can you help me find a practice in Hawaii or something like well, that. Well, heck yeah. Why wouldn't they? They have a vested interest in that. Another place that I came across just today is the American Society for Acupuncturists. Sure. The, the ASA actually has some listings on their website. I'll put that in the show notes for, the, for everybody. What do you think about partnerships? That's a sticky wicket. I would say, I mean, so you have two options. One is to buy into a partnership and one is to go into practice with somebody that you know and you start a practice together. I would say my biggest piece of advice is if it's really difficult to either do that buy-in process or start that business together, if you run into a lot of difficult spots and it's really hard to negotiate, really think hard about it because it's going to be a whole lot harder to get out at the end or it may very well be difficult to stay in practice together. And so if it feels painful or difficult when you're starting out together, that's something to you know really seriously consider. And just sort of more broadly thinking about what that partner's outlook on life is like, what are their priorities, what are their goals, what are their passions? If it doesn't as if it doesn't align pretty darn well, you have a potential for conflict. My experience with the business partner that I had was that she was all done having a family. She had always been the primary breadwinner of her household. She was motivated to build that practice, to grow it, to be there all the time. And I was young and didn't recognize that that should be something to alert me to that this might not be the best fit because I had brand new babies and. I was not prepared for the amount of work that she was expecting of me. That was a very tricky uh, thing to navigate. And, you know, similarly, in terms of what are your employer styles? How do you approach being a boss? Because those are areas where you can have potential conflict. How big do we want to get? How do we want to treat our employees? They're really important things. So I'd say partnerships are, are difficult. I think they're very difficult. And, you know, and one other thing is just, How much of the partnership do you own? So the way we negotiated my buy-in was she felt very strongly. Ours was a a corporation. So the way she felt was she really wanted to have 51% of the practice. And I had 49% of the practice. 
her thought was, well, what if all of a sudden you wanted to be a giraffe chiropractor? I want to be able to say, you know, I've built this from scratch. I want to be able to say, no, you can't. But given that, she also, as a corporate owner, could have just voted me out of the corporation. And so that was a vulnerable place for me. So what we ended up doing is that even though she was 51% owner and I was 49% owner, we had equal votes in as corporate members. It, it's a little bit funny, but but basically it allowed me to be protected from being voted out of ownership. So that was the way we negotiated it, but it was very difficult to get there. And that's what I'm sort of implying is that if it's very difficult to get to that point, it might be very difficult to negotiate other things as you move on as partners. Yes. So do your premarital counseling, folks. Yes. <laughs> that was a really great point. And it is like that, isn't it? It's it's sort of like, yeah, you, you're going to be married to that person for a potentially very long time. Yes. And also knowing that if, if you are in a partnership, there is business marital counseling. <laughs> well, it has to be, right? There, there is. I mean, there are psychologists who specialize in business counseling and working through these kind of things. And they're, you know, they're great, great resources if you are in a partnership and having difficulty. So. <laughs> seek help. Seek help. Yes, seek help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about, I, so let's see here. When I was looking for a place to start my practice, I really thought, and I still believe this, like location is really important. But then I see practitioners who are tucked away in tiny corners and they have perfectly flourishing practices, but I don't know how long they've been there. I don't know if they had a flourishing practice and moved into a tiny little pocket of a corner. What do you think about location? Do you think location is really that important? You know, I think there is an element of importance to it. Both of the practices I had in Portland were on really busy streets and we had people walk in and just be like, hey, I was just wondering what you guys do. <laughs> so there is a component to that. And just being recognizable, it's its just like recognizing the name brand Coca-Cola. If somebody just in the back of their head has driven past my practice and seen my logo, when they go to Google, oh, I need an acupuncturist, they're going to think, oh, yeah, there's that one place. Well, it's you know, touch so- points, right? It's just another mm-hmm. touch point with, with getting people familiar with you and your brand. I think I drove past your practice every single day that I was in school. So so that there's a, there's an element that, that's that. I'd say if you have an off the beaten path practice, you have to come up with other ways to market yourself probably. But I wouldn't rely exclusively on the sandwich board on the busy street because that doesn't do a ton for you. And But again, there's that balance between cost benefit. You know, if you have a practice on a busy street that's very visible, it's on the corner, that's going to be pretty expensive, you know? So you're going to have to bring in more patients to pay for that big fancy office as opposed to the one tucked back in the corner where, boy, your overhead is going to be a heck of a lot lower. And so you don't have to draw in as many patients. You know what I mean? So so you have to kind of think about your battle aspects of it. Pick your battle. So, and this is also a question based on a newbie, a newbie. I had, when I opened my massage practice, I don't, I don't remember even ever hearing about triple net and negotiating leases and build. Well, of course I didn't really do build that. I was a solar practitioner, but this is something new. And I don't know if it's just prolific in, in the town that I'm in, but everybody wants to hit you with triple net. 
Oh, that's that's standard. Yeah. Is so it? triple net is absolutely it is absolutely standard in a in a commercial lease. It's industry standard. So it's basically you're paying for the taxes for the the real estate taxes. You're paying for the building insurance and you're paying for maintenance. And so it is oftentimes, I mean, sometimes people will just build it into the lease. They'll just say, well, it roughly is this. And so I'm going to increase the, what the lease price would be by X number of dollars. But sometimes you have it as a separate cost associated with the lease. So here's the lease amount plus triple net. And those are you know, two different ways of doing it, but you pay for it either way. And usually the way it works is that when lease a building or lease a office, it kind of it depends on the tightness of the market, how much you can negotiate. Frequently, you know, office leases are in high demand in the places where I've lived. And so you don't really have too much negotiating room on that. Oftentimes it's, you know, here's what the lease will be. Do you want it or do you not want it? But, you know, it kind of depends on how busy your town or city is. And if you want to change any part of the building or the office, you have to get permission from them because it's their property. But anything that you do to change that practice or that that space, excuse me, is it's called a build out and it's standard that you pay for it and they get to keep it. So like in our last practice, we added a wall, we put in a because the sink that was in the office was really gross. So we put in a new sink. When we left that office, it stayed. So that's something to to consider. Sometimes uh uh landlord will give you a certain dollar amount toward a build out and and that's not uncommon so that's something you could potentially negotiate like hey can i you know this carpeting is really old would you be willing to pay to replace the carpeting or can i have a thousand dollars toward build out or or things like that Mm -hmm. but it is something that like if you invest money in that building you don't get to get that money back at the end of your lease I don't know why I think that's so unfair, but there's a part of me that's just like such a rebel inside. Like, <laughs> I'm never going to do that. And then what do you? What am I going to do? Like practice on the street corner under a tent? Oh, it drives me nuts. It, yeah. it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to wrap your mind around it, but it's, yeah. it's just the way the business works. I think the, I think the best way to wrap your mind around it for the new practitioners or anybody who's never really researched and tried to, to rent a space is that they'll list the monthly rent you should mentally note in your head that that is going to, it's going to cost way more than that. Cause I think when you're looking for a space, you have an amount in your head usually. And you're like, Oh, I can afford that. But it's so heartbreaking when you get there and they're like, Oh, it's just another $200 on top of that. And we call that triple net, you know, like, Oh, it's so painful. I moved to a very expensive area. So I'm, I'm definitely feeling the ramifications of my choice on that one. I'm going to kind of shift the conversation a little bit here and start talking about for the listeners, especially the new practitioners who are coming out and are actually looking for jobs. I really want to spend some time on the topic of independent contractor versus employee. And I'm actually going to bring up something and let you kind of talk about it a little bit, something that I've seen on the interweb quite a bit conversations. The scenario looks like this. You have a practitioner who's in practice and wants to bring in a another practitioner and put them on a schedule and bring in patients. They're going to bill for this person. And I saw this conversation. That person was just, they weren't even asking if they should hire the person as an independent contractor or an employee. They were just simply asking, do I bill under MPI, MPI or do I bill under their MPI? And automatically, my question in my head was like, if you're billing for them, aren't they an employee? 
So can you talk about that a little bit, maybe a distinction between those two, and then just maybe touch on the insurance part? Sure, certainly. So part of it has to do with that the industry has shifted over the last 10 years or so. As I sort of alluded to at the beginning, it was very standard that other practitioners joining your practice would be an independent contractor. And and, and an independent contractor is a, a legal definition set by the IRS. Basically, it means that it's someone who has a contract with you for a certain service that they're going to provide for your business, but they are independent. So the, the most pure version of that is, let's say, you're a builder and mm-hmm. you hire a plumber to come in and do a job for you. They have their own business. They come in. They're an independent contractor for you. You pay them for that amount. Off they run off into the sunset. So the the attraction for a business owner for that is you don't have to pay any employee taxes. You don't have to pay workers' compensation taxes for them. And they can't make a workers' compensation claim against you. In the physical medicine field, people frequently hurt themselves. You know, acupuncturists get low back pain or chiropractors hurt their thumbs. It's something that as business owners, people tended to try to avoid that just because they wanted to reduce you know, the amount of workers' compensation claims that they would have. However, the IRS has really cracked down on that in the last 10 years by saying, if you have them working on a regular basis and you're controlling aspects of their job, then really they should be an employee. They really shouldn't be an independent contractor. If I have a set schedule for you and you have to ask me when you take vacation and you have to chart note XYZ fashion, that's really more of an employee type of a situation. I think that there's practitioners out there who've been out there for a long time and haven't really caught up with the times. It would not be surprising to try to to encounter someone if you're trying to be an associate who says, oh, you should be an independent contractor. You might gently counsel them to you know, consider what the IRS has been cracking down on because they have been auditing people who have independent contractors and it doesn't work out super well for them. It's to their advantage to get with the times as well. But the thing about that is that the culture of alternative medicine has sort of been on the fence between those two things. And so associates oftentimes, well, they have to kind of do the way the practice does, but they also can come and go at their leisure. And they're like, hey, secretary, I'm taking this day off. Or, you know, I'm taking a leave at this point, or I'm going on vacation or things like that. When you're an employee, you have to understand that it doesn't quite work that way. So there are rights that you have as an employee. They will pay part of your taxes, all those kind of things. But there's also responsibilities that go with that. You have to understand if you're an employee, you have to ask to take a vacation or things like that. That's just something to take into consideration. There are some true independent contractor situations where really it is this person is coming in for maternity leave, for example, or you're, it's almost sort of like a share space agreement. Like I'll just give you my overflow, but I'll just pass along those patients to you. That could be more of an independent contractor type of a situation, but by and large, the movement is towards employee. Given that you asked the question about the MPI, it's partly insurance specific as to whether you bill, whose, whose NPI you bill under, whether it's the practice NPI or the individual's MPI. It's common when you hire a new associate and you're working on getting them contracted to bill under your MPI while you're working 
to get them contracted. For example, I'm working to get you contracted with Kaiser and I want you to be able to see my Kaiser patients. And so I bill under mine, but that's when you're under very close supervision. And that, and so like, I feel like it's justified that way. If you kind of did that all along and they're working for you for a year and you're still, still billing under that MPI, that's, that is against the contract that you have with insurance companies and, and the number of insurance companies specifically prohibit that. And so it's, it's something that you have to kind of, check with your contracts for each individual insurance company to see what's allowed and what's not allowed for that. You have an independent contractor. I'm not so sure that you could actually do their billing for them because that then you're controlling their money. Yeah. Can't control their money because then you're mixing business. Right. Right. I'd say unless it was like you kind of shared the biller and you both shared paying for it, I would say not. No, I'd say that at that point, they're an employee. If your biller bills out everything for them and you dole out like uh, it's very common to get a percentage then then that's really an employee at that point even though and that and that was where we also used to differentiate was like well if you get a percentage you're a contractor but if you have a salary you're an employee but that doesn't really hold weight with the IRS frankly all of my all of my associates were independent contractors when I first started because that was what we did the money part of that is important i think from both aspects as well one and you can correct me if i'm wrong but as a new practitioner going into a practice, if the person wants to bring you in as an independent contractor, you really need to know in your head that you will be paying all of the taxes. And so Mm -hmm. if they're saying $20 an hour is a great pay for an independent contractor, well, you're pretty much going to be making two thirds of that. And one third of that is actually going to taxes. So you're really, you're not making that much money. Now, if they were going to hire you as an employee at $20 an hour, then that's different. You're actually making more money than you would if you were an independent contractor. So you have to pay your own taxes. You are your own corporation or you should be your own corporation as an independent contractor. Correct. Yeah. And um, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to take a, just a little quick side note in terms of percentages, because that was one thing that I, I wanted to bring up just because you were asking about new practitioners, is what what is an appropriate percentage for an associate to make? And this is something that I have experienced a lot with new associates that are new graduates, never run a business before. And I don't mean any offense by saying this, but I think that we oftentimes graduate with an overinflated sense of what we are entitled to. And so if you've never run a business, you don't understand how expensive it is to run a business. It is absolutely standard for 50% of the money that you bring in to go directly to overhead. And that's not paying yourself a single dollar. That's your staff. That's your rent. That's your triple net. That's your supplies. 50% of the money is out the door before you're paid a dollar. And so, you know, being an associate, and if you're coming in saying, I want 70%, that's a non-starter. So, so that's just just for reference. You know, you know, between thirty and forty percent as a starting is probably pretty. It's pretty standard, and it's actually pretty reasonable because as a new associate, you're a lot of work for the for the business owner. You're so excited to learn, and and it's well intentioned, and you're like, wow, can you teach me about these X-rays? And oh, you know this new technique, and I'd love to know about that. And I spend a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time which means I'm spending less time with patient care, which means I'm bringing in less dollars that are, quote, my dollars. There is a cost associated with training a new associate or with training somebody who's going to eventually buy your practice. I spent many, many, many hours training the person who eventually bought my practice. And, you know, there's a monetary component to that. I would say 
to just be aware of and not to feel personally offended. I've heard many new graduates feel just, oh, they're so affronted that they were offered 30% or or even 40%. That's a pretty reasonable wage, just given the amount of expense that's associated with running a practice. And if you don't know that, then then it can feel like, how, how on earth is that fair, right? No, I think it's an, it's actually a really great point for from both perspectives. I think a lot of practitioners who are more experienced and want to bring people in don't actually understand that aspect either. Have you broken down and figured out how much you're actually making per patient based on your overhead? Because it's going to take me seeing three of those to actually pay you that amount. It it takes far more to bring somebody else in. I totally agree. Yeah. And it, but it is true on the flip side of that too. People without any experience and not understanding the copious amounts of overhead that is entailed in running a practice. So uh, I'm curious about what industry standard is with paying practitioners. Is it more common to pay uh, a percentage or is it more common to pay an hourly rate? So at least within chiropractic, uh, percentage is far more common just because it reflects how busy you are. And so particularly when you're first starting and you don't have that many patients, you're a new associate, that would be a lot of expense that would go out toward paying that practitioner when they're not bringing in all that much revenues. And also it rewards hard work. And Mm -hmm. so I think in a sense, it's good for both. So you have increased income potential because oftentimes if you are paid a salary, they're taking that into account. And so you have the benefit as a new practitioner of having a guaranteed income, but then you kind of capped out at a certain amount mm-hmm. and you aren't going to ever really necessarily make more than that than, you know, you could negotiate a raise or something like that. One thing I did with one associate though, that is a potential um, option. She was a primary breadwinner for her family. She had four kids. So it was really important that she hit the ground running. And so what we did with her is gave her a guaranteed minimum. And so she made that until she was making within her percentage, she was making more than that. And then she slowly paid that back. If if that makes sense. Oh yeah, that's great. It was a really good way so that I wouldn't necessarily lose a bunch of money paying her, but she would have that upfront income so that she could put food on her table. And so it was a really good way that we could navigate that. And then once she'd basically quote paid us back for the money we'd fronted her, then we just went into a standard percentage and that worked really, really well. That's genius. Not only that, you built a very solid relationship with that. Totally. Oh, she was fantastic. She was one of the best associates I ever had. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so for sure. Because you, yeah, that's awesome. I love that. So I feel like, in my experience, that chiropractors have so, such a better education when it comes to business than what I've seen coming out of the acupuncture schools. And I do understand that the schools are trying their best and you can only cram so much in. But my chiropractor friends know so much more about business. Or it seems like their practices run so much more smoothly are there some tips you have for acupuncturists to kind of help them along the way? Sure. I'd say that most of us go into this industry because we love patient care, not because we love running a business. And so it's very understandable that we go into it not with this like passion for QuickBooks or like, boy, do I just want to like build bridges with my 
financial institutions. So it's understandable to come into it not feeling super passionate about it. But I think it is super important if you're going to run a successful practice to just bite the bullet and familiarize yourself with basic economics, with basics of running business, business plans, mission statements, things that feel like, why do I possibly have to do this, but actually end up being really important and really helpful. Hone your mindset and your goals and build the practice that you really want to have. And so, as I alluded to before, take a class from the community college, interview people that you know that are successful in business and ask what they've done. I'm sure there's a bazillion and a half YouTube videos out there about how to run a small business and just kind of embrace that part of it. It, it, My experience has been, it ends up being really fun. And because I wasn't a business person, I felt so proud of myself that I could run a successful (laughs) business. And so it's one of those things where you're like, you fight it, you fight it, you fight it. And then you're like, look at me, I'm so cool. Right. So, So I think it's validating to learn those kind of things and to be able to control your destiny that way. It really is empowering to figure things out and to get going. I love business. I'm a nerd. I absolutely love business. But I see so many people who are like, oh, I don't want to do the business. So what? And then, like you said, they really do the good fight. But ultimately, it is really empowering. And mm-hmm. you do feel proud of yourself when you get there. I don't know how to sell it any better either. <laughs> well, I, th- I think the way to sell it is that like you will help more people. You yeah. will actually meet your goals if you think about marketing yourself or if you think about what your business model is because you got into this field to help people. That is the overarching goal. And even though it feels at times cheesy or artificial, just feels like, ah, this shouldn't be something that I... Because somehow we associate marketing with tricking people into buying things they don't want to buy. It's more just letting the world know who you are and what you have to offer Mm -hmm. by running the practice the way that you feel is ethically responsible. That reflects more about who you are to your patients and it draws more patients to you. So it really is the same thing, even though it somehow feels diametrically opposed because we always think of like business being like Wall Street. It's, that's not accurate. I think people feel like, like you said, maybe it dirties the the medicine a little bit, but I look at it this way. You want to go out and you help all of these people, but you need to be so- supported as well. And part of being supported means that you need to have money to support you so that you have mm-hmm. a foundation with which to support all of these other people. So how is that money going to get there? And you have to really change your mindset about money's nourishing, like money Money is very helpful. Mindset, mindset. I think we're getting to a point where it's a really good good time to close down a little bit. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I would just say my overarching thought is just to really, even though it feels scary, dive right in and be yourself and honor that you are something that is good and you are going to try hard and you're going to work hard and what you are will be good enough. I know I know that sounds suddenly very wooey, but that is, you know, what I'm trying to say in all of this is if you stick to who you are and what feels good to you, you can find a way to practice in a way that honors who you want to be. And it's fun. It's fun. And it's great that you said that because I swear every single time I interview somebody, we end with that. And it's such a great message for new practitioners. Just be you and you are enough. Like you got this. Go get it. That's right. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Marianne. I totally appreciate you.
Oh, my pleasure. It was really, really fun. That's it. Thanks for listening to the show. If you appreciate what I have going on here for you, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. That's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. And if you appreciate this podcast, it would be amazing if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then that's okay. No worries. Just skip it.